Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, award-winning journalist Eugene Meyer author of Five for Freedom, The African-American Soldiers in John Brown's Army, published by Lawrence Hill Books in 2018. To strike a blow against the American system of slavery, John Brown recruited about 18 men to raid a federal arsenal in Harpers Ferry, Virginia in 1859. Five of Brown's recruits were African-American, And I asked Eugene why he decided to focus on the lives of those little-known black men. Well, I was working for the Washington Post Veterans Day weekend 2000, and uh, a memorial plaque was dedicated to one of the five at National Harmony Cemetery in Landover, Maryland. And uh, so I went out and covered the story, and I met one of the descendants of Osborne Perry Anderson, who was one of the five, and he was the sole survivor, wrote the only insider account of the raid. And he was my way into the story. And so the uh, the article appeared inside the Metro section. I often say you might have missed it, but it made a great impression on me. And uh, so when I left the Post in 2004, I wrote a much longer article about Osborne Anderson, in the course of which I consulted a um, prominent John Brown scholar, Stephen B. Oates. And I said, you know, why, why is there so little about these five and Osborne Anderson in particular? He's, so there were two reasons. Uh, one was just uh, there's so little known about them, and the other reason was simple racism. And uh, so rather than feel daunted, I felt this was a challenge. And that's how I got into the story. All right. And then when did you start on this book? You could start from March of 2016, and I had an epiphany, which was that there's a story here, but it can't just be about Osborne Anderson. It has to be about all five. And this was born the idea for Five for Freedom. Who are the five men? Osborne Perry Anderson, John Anthony Copeland from Oberlin, Lewis Sheridan Leary, also from, from Oberlin, Ohio, Dangerfield Newby, and Shields Green. Those were the five. What was unique about Osborne Anderson? Well, um, other than the fact that he was the only survivor and wrote the only insider account, he escaped while the others were captured or killed, and he escaped with another raider, a white man named Albert Hazlitt, as was eventually captured. Osborne Anderson um, found his way to York, Pennsylvania, and he eventually got back to uh, Chatham, Ontario, where it was reported he looked as gone as a skeleton. And um, he was a sad figure in many ways because he uh, never got over the, uh, I guess, the physical trauma of uh, his uh, flight through the mountains and up to Canada. And um, he uh, he died of uh, consumption, uh, TB, in 1872, a young man still, 42. Uh, and it was only then that he was recognized as, you know, the last uh, hero of Harper's Ferry. And so it's hard enough to write a biography if you have a lot of <laughs> details. It's even harder when you're talking about men who were both free as well as uh, formerly enslaved. So how do you go about documenting five men's lives in relationship to the Harper's Ferry raid? Right. Well, the first thing I want to say is that 
these five men have been overshadowed for 160 years by their martyred commander, John Brown. And when they've been mentioned by historians, if at all, they usually treat as footnotes and they're lumped together as in five black men were also with John Brown at Harper's Ferry. So the point I wanted to make was that they all have their own stories and each came to Brown uh, by different routes and for different reasons. So the challenge was to tell their individual stories. And in some cases, there was a lot of documentation. Dangerfield Newby was the uh, son of a white man and an enslaved woman who actually belonged to somebody else in Fauquier County, Virginia. And um, one of his descendants I got to know had done a tremendous amount of um, family research, which he generously shared with me. So that was a great resource. And um, the two men from Oberlin, uh, there's a fair amount of, uh, of research done on them. And, of course, the letters of uh, John Anthony Copeland uh, and uh, Louis Sheridan Leary, after he was mortally wounded trying to flee across the Shenandoah River, and he left a wife and a young daughter. And his wife uh, remarried to a man named Charles Langston back in Oberlin. They moved to Kansas and had another daughter who became the mother of Langston Hughes, the famous Harlan Renaissance poet <laughs> and writer. Shields Green was more of a mystery man. Little is known about his early years other than it's said that he uh, escaped from a Charleston plantation. He left a wife and uh, or she had died and, and a young son, about a year old, and somehow found his way onto a ship that was in Charleston Harbor, probably a textile ship bound for the New England, and eventually came to the home of Frederick Douglass in Rochester. And from there, the trail is much easier to follow. And I did a little speculation in an endnote. I only write what I know. Endnotes are great for conjecture. But as I said, they each have their own stories, and I thought it was important to tell and document them uh, uh, as much as could be known. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. You did this story on Anderson, and then he was your window into Correct. the other four. But how did you start your research? Because anyone who's writing about men and women in the 19th century, there is a lot of documentation, and of course, depending on who it is, it may be very mm -hmm. little. So how did you deal with the initial idea that you had these four men, actually five, <laughs> that you had to try to find their background and then how they came to connect with John Brown. Well, starting with Osborne Anderson, you know, he'd written this book, A Voice from Harper's Ferry, and that was a primary source. Um, and he had met John Brown in uh, 1858 in Chatham, Ontario, when Brown had convened a constitutional convention for the provisional constitution he wanted to adopt for the free republic he hoped to establish in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia. Um, and so there was quite a bit of information uh, in that uh, slim volume. It was about 70 or so pages. So that was a great place to start. And the, uh, the archives at, uh, in Oberlin College were helpful. And um, the real cipher was, um, was Shields Green. But there was a, enough written about him. Um, plus there was a whole, you know, the, 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 the administrative papers of, uh, of Governor Wise at the Library of Virginia, I was able to get six uh, rolls of microfilm uh, sent up to Rockville, where I was spent days, you know, scrolling through this microfilm, and it was a tremendous amount of documents. Plus, there was a lot of contemporary coverage at the time of the capture and the trial. This was a big national story, mm -hmm. and reporters convened on Jefferson County, then Virginia, and Charlestown, where the uh, trials and executions occurred. So there was a tremendous amount of, of reporting going on. So that aspect was covered. Plus, there were interviews with uh, some of the uh, the defendants in the jail cells. There was a lot, a lot of strains that needed to be pulled together, and nobody actually pulled them all together before. 
and uh, I was just thrilled to be able to do it. Good. Now, it's one thing to even just deal with trying to figure out the life and the trajectory of one man. You're talking about five African-American men. So how did you decide how much information you would concentrate on leading up to the raid and then, of course, coming out of? Well, I wanted to structure a narrative, and uh, each of the chapters sort of focuses on one of the five. Uh, so, for example, um, the chapter about the two Oberlin men is called you know, the Oberlin Connection, and the chapter that focuses mainly on Osborne Anderson is called North to Canada. And the chapter that uh, focuses on Dangerfield Newby is called One Bright Hope. And that's derived from uh, letters that uh, Dangerfield Newby had received from his enslaved wife, Harriet, who was about to be sold south by her owner, Dr. Lewis Jennings, in uh, Prince William County, Virginia. And she wrote three increasingly desperate letters. The Dangerfield was then in Ohio, uh, applying his trade as a, as a uh, blacksmith to raise money to purchase her. But... The deal fell through, and, and uh, they had as many as seven children. And uh, in her letters, she said, uh, you are my one bright hope. So that's the chapter that focuses on newbie. So now you mentioned several times letters and communication between, say, the men and either their family or with John Brown or even with Frederick Douglass. Well, Jonathan Copeland spent a year at the preparatory department at Oberlin College. And he wrote these beautiful letters from his cell. He wrote lots of letters in the days before his execution. And I, I read, uh, when I present, I read uh, the letters the last morning that he wrote to his family, and they are so moving. The last Sabbath with me on earth has passed away. I have seen declining behind me the western mountains for the last time. Last night, for the last time, I beheld the soft, bright moon as it rose, casting its mellow light into my felon cell dissipating the darkness and filtering it with that soft, pleasant light which causes such thrills of joy to all those in like circumstance with myself. This morning, for the last time, I beheld the glorious sun of yesterday rising in the far east, away off in the country where our Lord Jesus Christ first proclaimed salvation to man. And now as it rises higher and high bright light takes the place of soft moonlight, I will take my pen for the last time to write you who are bound to me by those strong ties, yea, the strongest that God ever instituted, the ties of blood and relationship. Dear parents, brothers, and sisters, it is true that I am now in a few hours to start on a journey from which no travel returns. We shall meet in heaven where we shall not be parted by the demands of the cruel and unjust monster slavery. But think not that I am complaining, for I feel reconciled to meet my fate I pray God that his will be done, not mine. Let me tell you that it is not the mere act of having to meet death which I should regret, but that such an unjust institution should exist as the one which demands my life. I beg of you one and all that you will not grieve about me, but that you will thank God that he spared me time to make my peace with him. And now, dear ones, attach no blame to anyone for my coming here, for not any person but myself is to blame. I have no antipathy against anyone. I have freed my mind of all hard feelings against every living being, and I ask that all have anything against me do the same. And now, dear parents, brothers and sisters, I must bid you to serve your God and meet me in heaven. Dear ones, he who writes this will in a few hours be in this world no longer. Yes, these fingers which hold the pen will, before today's sun has reached the meridian, have laid it aside forever, 
and this poor soul have taken its flight to meet its God. And now, dear ones, I must bid you that last long sad farewell. Good day, Father, Mother, Henry, William and Freddie, Sarah and Mary. Serve your God and meet me in heaven. Your son and brother to eternity, John A. Copeland. That was written on December 16, 1859, the day of his execution. Mm. Uh, and uh, people uh, tear up and I tear up when I read them. So just for folks who don't quite remember or know, what was John Brown's goal in raiding um, Harper's Ferry? Well, that's a good question because he didn't really tell his little army his precise plans until the last minute. And they thought they were all going to run off slaves to Canada, which uh, John Brown had done before from various places, from Missouri and from Kansas. But his plan was to uh, take control of the town, which he did rather quickly, uh, and the arsenal, and to incite a slave insurrection. And the idea was that they would all go to the Appalachian Mountains and they wage kind of a guerrilla warfare on the plantations in the Shenandoah Valley and kind of disrupt the whole system of slavery, which would uh, just kind of fall apart on its own. And uh, as he disclosed this plan at the farmhouse shortly before the raid, there was a rebellion within the rebellion because that's not, that's not what these guys thought they were going to do. And um, so the second in command, John Kagi, said, you know, we should support our commander. So they did accede to his plan. And um, as I write, uh, the night of the raid, which was uh, October 16, 1859, it was a damp, chilly night, and John Brown climbed onto a horse-drawn wagon, two men in front shouldering arms, behind him were 16 others, and they marched uh, silently as if in a funeral procession. And that, those words were from Osborne Perry Anderson, and that's in fact what it was, because none of them except for Anderson survived. Mm. And they were, you say there were 18, definitely there were 18 men total, plus Brown. Right, and there were two or three more that stayed back at the farmhouse, sort of the rear guard, and... Uh, you know, they, they survived. and mm-hmm. The plan, though, seemed to have fallen apart pretty quickly. Well, there were a couple of reasons for that, sort of strategic or tactical mistakes that Brown made. Um, one by they, um, they captured hostages, and they eventually retreated to what was known as the John Brown Fort. It was really the Arsenal Engine Firehouse, and they allowed the hostages to go, you know, go visit with their family, who were by that time in Harpers Ferry, you know, escorted, guarded. So that kind of delayed things. And then there was an eastbound train coming through Harpers Ferry. And instead of holding the train there, Brown allowed it to go through as a sign of his good intentions. Well, when it got to Monocacy Junction a few miles down the road, of course, they contacted the feds. And President Buchanan dispatched Colonel Robert E. Lee, who was, you know, taking the weekend off at Arlington House, which is <laughs> now the, you know, the Lee Mansion across the river from, from D.C., and uh, so he and 90 Marines with uh, Jeb Stewart, who was also a Confederate figure a few years later, uh, brought the, uh, the insurrection to an end in 36 hours. Mm. It, it also, um, according to your, your book, then one of the first men to die as part of his army was Newby. Yes, and that's a very sad uh, part of the story because, as I mentioned, he had joined Brown to free his enslaved wife and their children, and he was sent to guard the approaches to the Shenandoah River Bridge, which was both a place that they could be attacked by militias and also their escape route. And there came a time where he wanted to join Brown at the Arsenal Firehouse, so he attempted to cross this open area, and he was cut down by a sniper. 
And as soon as he fell, some of the townspeople approached him and, and uh, cut off his genitals and his, mm. and his ears for souvenirs. And then they left him for the hogs. Mm. And literally? The ho- literally. And the hogs ran around his body for a while. And there's a little street in Harpers Ferry called Hog Alley. So if you go to Harpers Ferry and you'll see that street, you'll have a better understanding of the, the origin of that. Mm. And I also make the point that, you know, when his family was indeed sold south and separated, I said, can you imagine people being wrenched, children being wrenched away from their sobbing parents in the land of the free and the home of the brave under the rule of law? Can you imagine that happening? Mm. And it happened then and it's happening now, too. Right, right. It is happening now. One of the five African-American men is killed almost instantly once the raid is underway. And then the other four, one escapes, and that's Anderson, and the other three, uh, what happens to them? Well, Louis Sheridan Leary attempts to escape across the Shenandoah River, and he's he's shot and mortally wounded, but he's brought to shore and he dies, you know, eight hours later. Um, John Anthony Copeland is with Leary, and he's shot at, but he's not injured. And, uh, in fact, he and one of the militia confront each other. They each have a gun, but the, their guns are water-soaked, so nothing happens. But then he's almost hanged by the townspeople when he's brought to shore. And it's actually a white doctor, um, John Starry, who intervenes and prevents him from being hanged. And he's taken to, uh, to the jail in Charlestown, and uh, the surviving men would be the uh, Shields Green, uh, John Copeland, um, two white raiders in brown, are all tried, convicted, and executed. Your description of the raid and the aftermath comes about midway through the book. So as I was reading it, I'm like, okay, there, there's more. So where else what does else he have to go? <laughs> but I love the way you then deal with the aftermath, just not the immediate aftermath, but the long term in terms of what happened with the people who are the descendants of these men. So fast forward uh, to 1959, the Centennial to John Brown raid, um, and... Uh, Think of the context on the the cusp of the Civil Rights Revolution and also the Civil War Centennial. It's still a very Southern-dominated area. And so there was a lot of official nervousness about whether to, how to handle this Centennial. They didn't want to make John Brown a hero. And uh, there weren't even any African-American people involved. And um, the Park Service was engaged in this weekend commemoration, I guess you'd call it. One of the things they did was they reenacted the capture of John Brown, and there were Civil War reenactors, and he was still very much the villain, so that when they, quote, recaptured him, the, the crowd of a 1,000 people uh, all cheered. So that was, the, that was 1959. So fast forward another 50 years, the sesquicentennial in 2009. The country had changed. The first African-American president. The Park Service had changed, and they made a great effort to reach out to descendants on all sides of the conflict. And uh, they very generously gave me a list of descendants and contact information. So I was able to, to talk to descendants of uh, John Copeland, uh, Louis Leary, uh, Osborne Anders, of course. He was my way into the story. And Dangerfield Newby. Dangerfield Newby's uh, descendants, one is in Fauquier County, Virginia. Her name is Sherry Carter. She runs a sort of an arts and crafts shop called Sherry Shop on Main Street. Uh, it's a great place. If you're in Warrington, please drop in and <laughs> say hello. So she was very helpful in, in uh, giving me directions to the actual locations where her ancestors had been enslaved, not that far away. And then there was another descendant named uh, Ashton Robinson III. 
And I had an address for him in Colorado, which was no longer good. I did some investigative reporting, which is what I've done for years. And I guess what, you know, good researchers do. And I found him in uh, outside of Cannonville, Utah, population 160. And uh, he and his wife, Ellen, were living two miles off the pavement. <laughs> so Ashton's parents had both uh, attended segregated Dunbar High School in D.C. in the 40s. They were fair-skinned, and they moved north, and they passed. So Ashton didn't know until he was in his mid-40s that he had African-American heritage, much less that he was descended from Dangerfield Newby. So he and I talked, and he had done all this research before the Internet, and um, he very generously shared his research with me, court documents that he'd unearthed and copied. And then he learned that he was descended from uh, Dangerfield Newby. He learned about his African-American side of his family from a half-brother in California. His half-brother found in the 1920 census the letter B next to that paternal grandfather. And, you know, what's that all about? So Ashton contacted the Mormons who, you know, do a lot of genealogy. Mm -hmm. And that's where he learned about his ancestry. And as he tells me this, he starts sobbing. And uh, this brought home to me that uh, this is why this is so important, that this is not just a black story, it's not just a white story, it's an American story. And he's struggling with these existential questions. You know, 160 years after the John Brown raid, who am I? What am I? Where do I fit in this country? Um, and to me, that's, that's what the story's about. This is an American story. It belongs to all of us, and it's so important. And that unless and until we not only acknowledge our history, but we own it, all of the history and all of us, that we will never um, achieve the aspirational goal of out of many, we are one. And that's what this book is all about. That was author Eugene Meyer talking about his biography, Five for Freedom, The African-American Soldiers in John Brown's Army, published by Lawrence Hill Books in 2018. This interview was recorded in November 2019 in Washington, D.C. You can read more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>